Hey everyone, welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan, here of course with Paul Prescott. Paul, what's new? What are, what are we doing today? Not much. I'm excited for the show. We got a great guest from the Teamsters out in New York. Um, we're going to be talking about Marcusa, the new left, um, everything Frankfurt School. So I'm excited for this show. Yeah, definitely uh, stay tuned for our friend from the Teamsters. Uh, Paul, do you want to talk a little bit about him before we bring him on? He wasn't in the description for today's show, a kind of surprise guest. Uh, but what is he going to be talking about? Yeah, so he, Vinny Perone, he is the president of Teamsters Local 804 in New York, uh, mostly New York City. And so they recently had a good victory against the UPS that he's going to talk about. And just also about he's doing a lot of really great things in his local. It's one of the strongest locals in the whole Teamsters union. So going to talk about what he's been doing there. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I, I know that you also wanted to say a few quick words before we kick off about some of the uh, strike actions that are happening uh, this yeah, week. Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, we're, some might call it a mini strike wave. I don't know if I'd go that far, but there's a lot of strike activity happening across the country that I want to give a shout out to. And you can get some love in the chat. You should shout out in the chat box your favorite worker that is listed here. So here are some workers that are currently on strike as we speak. Forgive me for this long list, but we got 2,000 hospital workers in Buffalo, 1,400 Kellogg workers in Memphis, Omaha, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 2,000 Washington carpenters, 1,000 miners in Alabama, 700 nurses in Massachusetts, 450 steel workers in West Virginia, uh, 420 whiskey workers in Kentucky. Definitely hope that is settled soon. Um, <laughs> 350 janitors in Denver, um, 300 aerospace workers in Los Angeles, 200 uh, bus drivers in Reno, 100 teachers in Pennsylvania, 75 musicians in San Antonio. The San Antonio Symphony is on strike and 50 machinists in West Virginia. So these are all strikes that are happening right now. And we also have some potential strikes coming up. The most hope, high profile, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard about, is film and TV workers in Hollywood, uh, represented by the union IATSE. You know, these are the you know camera crew, uh, makeup artists. Um, all the people that make these things happen. And I think, you know, since COVID, we've all been streaming a lot more, watching Netflix, and we've all become kind of used to these things getting put up quickly. Like a new, uh, one season ends, we're used to now in a few months, a new season will be here. But that's come at a cost. So a lot of them are striking over being overworked and really having insane work schedules. We know Netflix has been profiting like crazy. So they're fighting back now. So they just uh, voted on a strike authorization. Um, 98% of them voted yes. Um, and, you know, they had an 89% turnout. So 89% of the members voted to strike if necessary. We also have 37,000 Kaiser healthcare workers, 10,000 uh, workers at John Deere, um, some uh, grad students at Harvard, Columbia, and Illinois State uh, University, and 2,000 telecom workers in California that might be striking soon. Um, so a lot of stuff happening. And, you know, I think this is a question I kind of had during COVID. You know, we we saw all this stuff about the essential worker, people kind of realizing their value more. We And a lot of companies that have profited like crazy. And I had been wondering that kind of post-COVID, even though we're still in COVID, would there kind of be this kind of like reaction from workers and some strike action? And so it looks like we could be seeing um, some of this happening and workers kind of saying, if you've been calling us essential, now act like it, now pay it, pay us like we're essential. Yeah. 
Uh, on that note, I, I want to give an extra little shout out to the nurses in Massachusetts, yeah. the 700 nurses who are on strike. Um, I mean, obviously, all of I, you know, we stand in solidarity with everybody who's on strike who might be about to go on strike. Um, but the reason I bring up the nurses is because, uh, you know, if you're watching the show uh, back in August, uh, I talked a little bit about the St. Vincent Hospital nurses strike. Uh, that's the 700 nurses who are on strike in Massachusetts. Back in August, they had already been on strike for six months uh, and they're still on strike. So they've been on strike now for um, almost, I guess, eight months. Uh, and the interesting thing about this strike is that um, back when I, you know, talked about the nurses strike in August, the they had been at the negotiating table with management for quite a long time. Um, and they, you know, management had actually met many of their demands. But the last sticking point was that this this healthcare management, this for profit healthcare management did not want to agree to the terms that all of the striking nurses would get their positions back. So in other words, you know, they in, they agreed to reduced uh, staffing ratios. I believe they agreed to a wage increase and lower hours. Uh, but but they wouldn't say that everybody who has been on strike will get their jobs back. They said something along the lines of some of you might. But, you know, we like now have other nurses. So we're going to figure it out. And uh, the nurses were like, no, <laughs> like every striking nurse has to get her job back. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I just want to underscore that that's really important because what the healthcare management company was doing is basically a union busting technique, right? right. Uh, like, you know, they've come to the end of their negotiation. It won't actually cost them any money or really anything to give all of the striking nurses their jobs back, but it's a punitive retaliatory measure. And I think, you know, the nurses obviously have been holding the line. I think that they're really living out the principle of an injury to one is an injury to all. Uh, when I spoke to one of the nurses back in, back in August, this was, you know, the sticking point back then, and it still is the sticking point now. And this nurse said something like, you know, we... I mean, we're not going to throw our colleagues under the bus. So right. against, you know, solidarity to the striking nurses, um, the ball is completely in the management's court. And, mm -hmm. you know, what they're doing is extremely punitive and retaliatory. So, uh, I mean, they have the power to end the strike. Right. And and healthcare is definitely a hot spot to watch. I mean, just think about what healthcare workers have been through since COVID. So many hospitals are dealing with staffing shortages. And a lot of times that could be solved if the hospitals would be just willing to pay for more staffing. Um, so a lot of nurses are really at their breaking point. And, you know, one potential strike I actually did not mention, I just heard today before the show started that a, a local in, in Pennsylvania nurses um, have took a strike authorization vote. Um, so again, that means they, they will strike if, if they feel it's necessary. So yeah, I think, you know, people have just had enough and, you know, they're, they're going to be standing up for themselves. Stay tuned. Yep. <laughs> Um, all right. So uh, I guess let's let's kick it off. Yeah, um, let's go. So, you know, uh, one of the things that we talked about when we had Jeremy and Ben on talking about the Frankfurt School is obviously there are a lot of misconceptions about the Frankfurt School and a lot of misconceptions about Marxism and socialism that kind of float around in the ether. And, you know, when we get to the interview with Jeremy and Ben, uh, we'll talk about that a little more. But for today, I, I wanted to look at this concept of socialism in the U.S. and what people think about it. So last week, Republican Senator Marco Rubio, a self-proclaimed conservative champion of the working class, criticized a piece of legislation designed to make modest improvements to America's pitiful social safety net. 
the $3.5 trillion Biden plan isn't socialism, it's Marxism, he tweeted. Now, fear-mongering over both socialism and over Marx, of course, is a favorite right-wing pastime here in the U.S. Let's take a look at an ad from Senator Tom Cotton's re-election campaign last year. They fought and sacrificed to keep us free. But now socialism has taken over the Democratic Party. Socialism has devastated countries like Cuba and Venezuela. Socialism means less freedom, less opportunity, economic collapse, and police states. Make no mistake, socialism will wreck America and take away our freedoms. Tom Cotton is standing with President Trump to keep us free. America will never be a socialist country. I'm Tom Cotton, and I approve this message. More recently, in August, a Fox News poll ominously suggested that a majority of Democrats now favor socialism over capitalism. Capitalism for socialism, Democrats are asked. 49 percent view, view capitalism favorably, uh, 44 percent unfavorably. Uh, and now in terms of socialism, 59 percent view, uh, view socialism favorably, 31 percent have it unfavorable. Uh, Vivek the numbers don't surprise you, but it's because capitalism has been lazy. People have to explain what socialism means. It's not what you get. It's not even the playing field. It's not vilifying rich people. People should bring up examples of what it would mean. So I absolutely agree that people should, quote, bring up examples of what socialism would mean. For instance, I'd like to hear Marco Rubio's explanation for why lowering prescription drug prices for seniors on Medicare is apparently a slippery slope to workers seizing the means of production. But while it's easy to laugh at the right screeching over creeping socialism, the truth is we on the left occasionally also overstate the prevalence of socialism in the U.S. We're sometimes too quick to look at some anti-capitalist content in a corporate magazine, or the same dubious polls that the right uses for its own propaganda as evidence that the political winds are shifting in our favor. Therefore, I think it's worth investigating what the American public today actually thinks about socialism. Now, with the usual caveat that polling is imperfect and frequently, vulner frequently vulnerable to manipulation, let's look at a few polls that are slightly more rigorous than the surveys on socialism run by Fox or by the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Reputable research and polling organizations such as the Pew Research Center, Gallup, and Monmouth do suggest that on the whole, Democrats and younger people express warmer feelings towards socialism than their Republican and older counterparts. But there's no way to sugarcoat this. According to all of the aforementioned polls, in general, a majority of Americans are not crazy about the word socialism. So in 2019, the Pew Research Center found that 55% of Americans had a negative impression of socialism compared to the 42% that expressed a positive view of socialism. By contrast, around 65% of people surveyed said that they had a positive view of capitalism, while only a third said that they viewed capitalism negatively. Similarly, just last year, 57% 57 of respondents to a Gallup poll 53% of respondents to an NBC News Wall Street Journal poll and 57% of respondents to a Monmouth poll said that they had a negative opinion of socialism. 
But here's part of the problem. If you ask 10 different Americans what socialism is, you'll probably get 10 different answers. And in fact, Pew Research followed up their survey by doing exactly that. They asked their respondents why they did or did not like socialism and unsurprisingly got wildly divergent answers. As their report stated, quote, for many Americans, socialism is a word that evokes a weakened work ethic, stifled innovation, and excessive reliance on the government. But for others, it represents a fairer, more generous society. So some of the respondents who said that they opposed socialism said that they didn't like it because it was authoritarian. Others said that they didn't want the U.S. to end up like Venezuela. Now, on the other hand, some of the people who said that they liked socialism cited public schools and libraries as examples of socialism or said that they admired Denmark's cradle-to-grave social safety net. In other words, there was absolutely no consensus on what the word socialism meant. And to make things even more complicated, according to a socialist publication called Jacobin Magazine, most of the things mentioned by respondents, such as authoritarianism, libraries, or Denmark, are actually not socialism. So what should we make of all of this? If you ask me, I honestly don't think it matters that much. It, ma it doesn't really matter that the American public is conflicted about or even sometimes antagonistic toward the word socialism. But by the way, after the McCarthy era, the Cold War, and approximately a century of pro-capitalist propaganda from the political class, the media, and pop culture, I'm actually pretty surprised that only 55% of Americans today say they have a negative opinion of socialism. But, but here's what I think is actually more interesting than Americans' feelings about socialism proper. It's the fact that the same polling firms that suggest that Americans are not fans of socialism also consistently show that significant percentages of Americans are fans of many of the policies that are associated with a person who's currently the most famous socialist in the country. That's, of course, Bernie Sanders. So, for example, according to Pew, 62% of Americans say they favor raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. 63% say that the government has a responsibility to provide health care coverage for all. And 63% support free public college. Now, according to Gallup, 61% of Americans think that the wealthy pay too little in taxes and 52% of Americans, which is roughly the same percentage that said that they oppose socialism, actually support the idea of very heavy taxes on the rich. So when we're talking about things like healthcare for all, a jobs guarantee or a living wage, it might not matter all that much whether the right or the left calls these policies socialism. As Adolf Reed once put it, quote, you can call it socialism if you want. You can call it left Keynesianism. You can call it capitalism with a human face. You can call it Teddy Pendergrass if you want to. The point is that in terms of achievable public policy, we're still a long way off from when it'll be necessary for us to actually spend time splitting hairs over what exactly socialism is. In the meantime, opinion polls have given us a rough blueprint for where we should be concentrating our fights. Bernie-style public investments pull well with the public, the goal for the left and for progressives, as always, is to actually make them policy. I think Teddy Pendergrass might be a less polarizing uh, name for it. So <laughs> easy Teddy, to get on board with that. Teddy Pendergrass for all. Right. Yeah, exactly. Who would oppose that? <laughs> but actually, Paul, I, I'm curious to think or I'm, I'm curious to, to hear um, whether you what you think of politicians like 
Bernie Sanders and India Walton calling themselves democratic socialists. Because I, I, I do want to make clear, I don't think that, you know, Bernie or, or India Walton should be hiding the fact that they're socialists. Right. And I actually think that they have done a lot to kind of destigmatize, de especially Bernie has done a lot to destigmatize that word. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I still don't feel like it's the most important fight. Um, I, I do right. sometimes think that there's too much hand wringing from both the right and the left about like, oh, this new poll about millennials and socialism came out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's an it's a interesting question. Like, I honestly think Bernie and India Walnut have handled it kind of as good as they could. And I think with, for someone like Bernie, there was no way he was ever going to run from the label. And, mm -hmm. you know, he, he didn't run from, from it. But, you know, you don't have to start every sentence by saying, as a democratic socialist, you know. So I think it's more important that, you know, people associate you with Medicare for all or, jobs guarantee then immediately associate associating you with the name uh, of socialism or that or that label but i think it is a question that you know in the future you know socialists that are running for public office are going to have to deal with because you know at a certain point you can't run from the label and you shouldn't but i think it's a question of how much do you emphasize it how much does that matter and of course it kind of matters also like what district you're in how much you might want to emphasize it or not um but it, you know i think like during both presidential campaigns, I, you know, I think it would be accurate to say that most people, if you if you ask them, like, say one word you associate with Bernie, I think more people would say healthcare or Medicare for all than socialism. And I think that's kind of where we would want to be at. The other thing is, um, you know, obviously, as we've seen from conservatives, they're going to call anybody, you know, right. left of them socialist anyway. Uh, again, you know, Marco Rubio saying that Biden's... <laughs> Biden's reconciliation bill is not just socialism, but is Marxism is um, uh, I, I mean, I, I actually think that uh, the Republicans are sort of inadvertently helping to destigmatize socialism because they're kind right. of like the boy who cried wolf at this point, you know, mm -hmm. like they're saying that, I mean, if, if anything and everything is socialism, then like it doesn't really function as an effective boogeyman anymore, I don't think. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, and yeah, and I think that also speaks to like the reason you shouldn't run from it is like they're going to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. And you know that. But again, I think it's like you don't have to feel you don't have to emphasize it in every sentence or every speech you're making. Um, again, it should just be more focused on what these policies are filling in. Like, what do we actually mean by this? Yep. Um, um, all right. So let's uh, let's get to your segment, because I'm I'm excited uh, to hear what you what you are about to talk about. And of course, I want to make sure we have time uh, uh, so we can get Vinny on in, in yeah. a timely manner. So take it away. Speaking of our, our best socialist institution, not really, but um, some of you know that I'm a great fan, probably one of the biggest fans of the United States Postal Service. So I want to talk about development that could have a big impact on the future of our Postal Service. So the American Postal Workers Union uh, recently announced that the USPS has chosen four pilot cities to experiment with the return of postal banking, which is the idea of allowing post offices to conduct basic banking services. So these cities are Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Falls Church, Virginia, and the Bronx in New York City. Now, the program, at least so far, is limited. It will allow customers to cash payroll checks or business checks up to $500, and have that money put onto a single-use gift card. But if this is successful, and if advocates keep the pressure on, this could lead to a vast expansion of the financial services post offices offer. And it may not seem like a big deal at first, but this could significantly improve the lives of millions of Americans. 
And think about it, many places, especially small towns, rural areas, uh, high poverty areas of cities do not have easy access to banking services. Many poor people rely on predatory payday loan and check cashing establishments when they're in urgent need of money, which often fuels a vicious cycle of debt. And Megan Day wrote about this in Jacobin saying, one in four U.S. households is unbanked or underbanked, meaning they're fully or partially boxed out of traditional financial services. Those 68 million people represent a growing market for payday loan sharks and spend an average of 10% of their yearly income on the high interest and fees that go with alternative financial services, roughly the same proportion they spend on food. On the other hand, post offices are located in every community, every zip code of the country. In fact, 60% of post offices are located in zip codes with only one or no bank branches. Under postal banking, customers would only be charged a very small flat fee for services without any interest. And we can also think about this as a racial justice issue. Black and Hispanic people are disproportionately unbanked, and the payday loan industry is especially strong in poor black and brown neighborhoods. A full-fledged postal banking system would drive out this predatory industry. And this is not a really innovative idea. We had postal banking in this country from 1911 to 1967. After, at its peak, you know, during World War II, 4 million Americans had savings accounts at post offices. During the war, $8 million was raised uh, for defense bonds sold through postal banks. And it's no coincidence that the predatory lending industry gained steam in the 1970s, right after postal banking was eliminated. And this issue has gained more public attention in recent years, thanks to none other than our dear Bernie Sanders, who talked about it a lot during his 2016 and 2020 presidential runs. And so let's take a look at this clip from him on the Jimmy Kimmel Show. We have millions and millions of low-income people who have to go to these payday lenders and pay outrageous interest rates. They're getting ripped off right and left. We can have our postal service provide modest banking to low-income people where they can cash their checks and they can do banking. I think it will help the post office and it will help millions of low-income people. The American Postal Workers Union, or APWU, has also been pushing on this issue for years. They actually negotiated postal banking as part of its collective bargaining agreement in 2016, but the Postmaster General has failed to enforce it. Let's listen to the APWU Legislative Director, Judy Beer, talk about why they support postal banking. You know, when you're campaigning and driving through neighborhoods and other communities, and even your own community. You may not see a bank for 10 miles. In fact, in many cases, these areas, these residents don't have banks for 10 miles from their home. And many of you may not have a bank 10 miles from your home. These are called bank deserts. In 2012, these unserved working class families paid $89 million on an average of $2,400 per 25,000 family income to um, what we call loan sharks, bank payday lenders, check cashing companies. 10% of their budget on interest and fees. The United States Postal Service already has a presence 
in low-income and rural communities. Postal banking is also part of the solution to the Postal Service's financial issues. So first of all, we should acknowledge that the main reason the USPS has financial problems is because of the ridiculous pre-funding mandate, which requires them to pre-fund the pensions of their employees 65 years in advance, something no other public or private entity has to do. But regardless of if that mandate exists or not, postal banking would bring in a whole other stream of revenue to keep the Postal Service operating at a high standard. It would also expand the employment at the USPS, which offers stable, unionized employment, especially for African-Americans and veterans. So postal banking would be a win-win for citizens, for postal workers, and for one of our best public institutions. And this pilot program is a step in the right direction. Um, so Jen, what do you think? You want postal banking account? Where are you? I, uh, I, I'm definitely here for the postal banking account. Um, Paul, I think I mentioned to you the other day that uh, the USPS uh, where I live has been like flyering like mad about jobs at uh, the, po yeah. the, the post office. Um, so, you know, if Jacobin doesn't work out, if, if Jacobin goes down the drain, right. I, <laughs> I could be working at USPS. Um, but in, in all seriousness, um, I think that, you know, the point that you made about uh, the rise of high interest, like predatory payday lenders kind of coinciding with the collapse of postal banking is very salient. Um, uh, bank desert is a great phrase. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, it, it obviously is very prevalent in low income communities. Uh, and but but I guess a question I have for you is something you did not touch on is the role of evil Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, who, you know, kind of was a Trump crony and kind of emerged during the Trump years as, right. you know, this, this figurehead who uh, of, of, you know, kind of uh, postal service self-sabotage, right? Like there were a lot of fears right. that he, uh, you know, was actually going to try to actively dismantle uh, the post office. Um, you know, I think one of the fears, which I think was later debunked, was that he was like removing post office boxes uh, right mm -hmm. before the election. Um, but, you know, I, I would be interested to hear whether you have thoughts on his role in working with the union to kind of make postal banking happen, at least in this pilot program, because at least from what I understand, um, he actually seemed pretty open to it, which which seems unusual for him. I mean, he he has he still has a host of other problems. But uh, do you know more about that? Yeah, I mean, it is kind of interesting. So DeJoy and postal management was open to this. They are doing this pilot program. Now, I will say this, you know, um, if some of DeJoy's other policies continue like they are, it will kind of be a mute point because like they will eliminate the potential for this program to expand. Because again, this pilot program is extremely limited. It's not the full vision of postal banking that the union wants. And, you know, some of you might have heard about DeJoy's 10-year plan. So, and you know, I think this issue, everyone was paying attention before the presidential election. Postal workers were like heroes for, for a week. I felt very validated in my <laughs> obsession. Um, but you know, I think people have kind of forgot, but this issue is still very live. So, you know, he released his 10-year plan and actually already he's starting to cut hours at post offices, um, you know, to send a mail across the country um, before it was like a two to three day standard. They've extended that to five days that it will take. Um, so they're cutting hours of workers, cutting hours of offices, um, cutting services in different respects. So the problem is, you know, it's good that they've been open to this pilot program, but if they keep on this train and I, you know, many think this is a plan to privatize ultimately because if service is going to decline, 
Um, they're going to lose the loyalty of, you know, the public and, and, and customers. Um, this could be a stealth privatization plan. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think it could be an issue that, you know, if they get this pilot program out, but then the USPS is losing funding and losing credibility, it's going to hurt their ability to expand this operation. So, and, and so this is another thing people should be paying attention to. Um, you know, Louis DeJoy is still there. He has to be, he can only be removed by the Postal Board of Governors. Um, so Biden has appointed some new good people, but the problem is um, not all of them agree on removing DeJoy. Um, so th- this problem is still with us that we should be mm-hmm. paying attention to. Uh, yeah. To to kind of connect the post office to, you know, what I talked about. And, and I know that you've mentioned this on the show before. The post office is like wildly popular. Like there's like right. no other institution in the U.S. that is as popular as the post office. Right. Like, isn't it like something like over 90 percent approval right. rating? 91 percent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And that yeah. cuts across Democrat, Republicans. And, you know, and I think. And I, look, I know this this demand of postal banking, it's not as revolutionary or whatever as something like Medicare for all. But I think this is an interesting thing that people on the left or groups like BSA can organize around in their local areas. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, again, the, the, the Postal Workers Union has been pushing for pilot programs in specific areas. And I think there's potential to mount these campaigns in other cities. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping to try and do one in, in Philadelphia at some point. To pressure, you know, to to um, put out there to to experiment with a pilot program, um, and again, I think it's something that could unite a large base of people. It's also something that, if anything, might get more support in rural areas again that are don't have a lot of banking access, um, you know. And I think many of us on the left are feeling lost about what to do. And I think an issue like Medicare for all, which is probably more compelling than postal banking, but you we're dealing with a complete blockage at the congressional level. So sometimes it's hard to campaign around that. But, you know, unless you like postal banking, it's maybe a little bit lower hanging fruit, um, easier to get people involved in. It creates a good partnership with a union like APWU, which, by the way, had endorsed Bernie Sanders in both elections. Um, they, I think they've endorsed Medicare for all. So they're no, you know, they're not enemies of the left. Um, so it's, it's something people should think about in their own area. I, I, I do want to go back to um, this issue or like this uh, talking point, I guess, that um, the postal banking will also help create a revenue stream for uh, the postal service. I mean, that is, you know, absolutely a good thing, I think. Um, but at the same time, like, I think I saw somewhere that the the flat fee that they are rolling out, you know, in, in these pilot areas is something like five ninety five or something, um, which again is a lot lower than obviously any of the payday lenders, you know, that are already in existence. Um, I think it's also lower than like what it costs to cash a check at like a Walmart or something. Um, but I, I think, you know, I think what's interesting, again, to go back to, um, you know, the, the 91% of people who approve of the post office is that the post office has been losing money for like kind of a long time and people like it anyway. And I think that there is, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, obviously I think that the USPS should be solvent, but like, I think the point is that people are used to kind of thinking at, of the post office as like a public good, you know, and uh, right. not something that necessarily has to like uh, break even or, or, or let alone turn a profit. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, and for years, it really operated on just essentially breaking even. And, mm-hmm. and again, like there, there can be no overstating that the, the central problem is this pre-funding mandate. And again, this yeah. is a law passed in 2006 
they have to pre-fund pensions 65 years in advance for all of their employees. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So like if you remove that, and there's actually, there is some bipartisan momentum around repealing that law, which I think would be huge. Um, you know, that really is a central issue for funding. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think you're right. Do, People don't do expect it to make a profit. Do you know if the union has any thoughts on the pre-funding? Yeah, I mean, they're all totally yeah, opposed to it. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and, you know, there are uh, four different postal unions um, really getting into the weeds here. But there, there's your there's your letter carriers, the uh -huh. people that are you see on the street delivering mail. The APWU is representing the clerks. There's the mail handlers and the mail processors. But on that issue, yeah, I think all four unions are united in being opposed to that. Because, um, again, it's just ridiculous. It's very clear what it was about. It's just mm -hmm. trying to create a problem. So you can eventually privatize it. Um, but if anyone brings that issue up, always bring up the pre-funding mandate. That is the number one talking point about why, you know, that that is the real financial problem with the Postal Service. I will say that, uh, you know, going off something that you had mentioned earlier about how like postal, like letter carriers kind of became like one of the like unsung heroes of the, you know, pandemic, like along with other essential workers. Um, I, I think that that, kind of cultural shift has actually sort of put the brakes on a lot of people uh, screeching about how the post office should be privatized or how like UPS or FedEx should take them over. Um, I remember that was like a thing that was bubbling up for a while, not mm -hmm. just on the right, but among like kind of technocratic liberals as well. And I don't know, like, have right. you have you felt like that's dissipated a little bit? Yeah. And, and it's one of these contradictory things with the Trump era so like things like this because it started to be viewed as a trump thing like right. there's this overwhelming outpouring of support um yeah and well, i think or like, like charter that, schools or right. something yeah yeah and right exactly and again this is why i think there's potential for campaigning you know like mobilizing on that sentiment from last year that is probably still there i think you can mount interesting public campaigns around postal banking and you know we can think bigger than that. There's also proposals to what if you had electric car charging stations at every post office, you could also process licenses, hunting licenses, like all kinds of things you could just do at the post office, you know, be, you know, cost people less money. And again, like think about expanding employment. Um, you know, I think the median salary at the post office is around 60,000 a year. 21% um, of postal workers are African Americans, a large proportion of veterans. Like it's really a, I think there's around 400,000 employees, but if we expand services, you also expand this kind of uh, good employment. So again, everyone wins. Um, you know, this is the kind of stuff we need to be doing. All right. Well, um, so we were going to bring on uh, Vinny, but it looks like he is uh, not quite with us yet. So I think what we should do since we pre-recorded our um talk with Jeremy and Ben, and it's a really great one. And I think that lots of you who, who have tuned in are eager to hear about the Frankfurt School. I think we'll go to that interview and uh, hit Vinny when we come back. All right, sounds good. We're now joined by Jeremy Cohen, the director of the Honors Program at the School of Visual Arts, and Benjamin Serby, a visiting assistant professor in the Honors College at Adelphi University. And their piece, of course, in the latest issue of Catalyst is The Two Souls of Marcuse's One-Dimensional Man. Jeremy and Ben, welcome to The Jacobin Show. Hi, glad to be here. Great to be here. Thank you. 
So I think uh, just to kick off, uh, the Frankfurt School is a much discussed but semi-confusing thing. Uh, we will be talking a little bit later about some of the various misconceptions and uh, uh, misinformation that kind of constantly circulates about the Frankfurt School. Uh, but since you two are both literal scholars of the Frankfurt School, I think it does make sense to begin with uh, kind of some basic definitional definitional questions. So Ben, maybe if you want to start uh, by just briefly explaining what the Frankfurt School is, what critical theory is, and then Jeremy, if you want to jump in um, and discuss why you guys chose to focus specifically on Marcuse in your Catalyst piece, uh, and what the main argument of one-dimensional man is. So the Frankfurt School is a, a cluster of different thinkers that form uh, together in the interwar period in Germany. Um, this is, uh, you know, some of the names that we might associate with the Frankfurt School who are better known are Theodore Adorno, uh, Max Horkheimer, and the person we're going to be talking about today, Herbert Marcuse. Um, they drew on a number of different disciplines, um, psychology, sociology, um, political science, um, uh, economics, um, in order to kind of unearth um, some of the major contradictions in modern capitalism. Um, often studying uh, culture, studying uh, music, film, literature, um, as well as the kind of traditional sort of, you know, social uh, realm. And so um, I think, you know, the legacy of the Frankfurt School in this country um, is very much with us today, particularly in, in the academy, in, in English departments, um, in, in interdisciplinary studies. Um, so, and I know you're going to ask about this, uh, Jen and Paul, but the, the sort of idea of quote unquote cultural Marxism, of, um, of Marxism as um, infecting the way that, um, you know, people on the left or even liberals um, think about uh, culture think about popular culture and try to influence it. Um, I think for many people that comes from the Frankfurt School's attempt to um, subject uh, a lot of uh, culture to uh, Marxist analysis. Um, and so um, I think, you know, Frankfurt School, even though Frankfurt is in Germany, a lot of its influence is really, I think, most relevant here in the United States, particularly because these are all scholars who came to this country um, to flee fascism um, in the 1930s and 40s, which is, of course, a big part of that story as well. Um, so, Jeremy, maybe you can take it from there. Yeah, I agree with everything Ben said. I mean, you know, critical theory means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I think, you know, the Frankfurt School were the people who invented the term. And I think, like, kind of the idea behind it was basically to formulate uh, uh, Marxist theory that could um, that could deal with like all the things that had happened over the course of the early 20th uh, 20th century so including like the rise of fascism and kind of a, a mass-based authoritarian politics on the right um, the kind of uh, the creation of like a kind of uh, consumerist welfare state capitalism and the seeming kind of dialing down of opposition um, in advanced capitalist countries, which we'll be talking about, um, I think more today, and kind of a number of the phenomena that they took to say like, you know, a lot is changing in the world. And so Marxism 
needs to be sort of rethought as a historical philosophy, um, as a historical set of ideas that are meant to analyze the current reality. Enough had changed about capitalism. Um, and of course, the rise of the USSR and also the kind of failure of revolutions in the West to take hold in the advanced capitalist world. Um, these things all required sort of a rethinking of Marxist categories. And so critical theory was their, you know, the, their name for it. And originally, we should say also the Institute, the Institute for Social Research was very closely tied, even actually to the German labor movement. They originally housed like the archives for a lot of the German labor movement, but they were very importantly, like, even though they were all Communist Party sympathizers, in many ways, they were independent and, you know, kept their independence from any particular political party. Um, and uh, because in part, they felt like all of the existing political formations, whether they were social democratic or liberal or communist or Trotskyist or whatever, they all were kind of missing some essential part of what it would take to like move past kind of the impasses of the mid 20th century. So, um, so there's that. So the reason we, as Ben said, there's a lot of influential figures in this, um, people who've kind of risen to stardom, other people like Eric Fromm, um, who've kind of faded as well. Um, or, you know, Leo Loventhal, people who aren't well known, the Marxist economist, Henrik Grossman. Um, we chose Marcuse, in some ways Adorno um, is maybe the person that academically people most refer to. And I, I, it certainly influenced my thinking and um, my ideas, but Marcuse was the one who was kind of most closely tied to politics um, throughout his career, really, um, from, from the very beginning uh, when he was a but much younger when he was part of like a revolutionary soldiers council in Germany to like um, his work uh, as part of like the OSS intelligence division during world war II. There's this really cool volume. Uh, oh, I'm forgetting the name off the top of my head, but it's, it's something like dispatches from um, the uh, critical theory or something like that. And it's basically like uh, several uh, uh, people associated with the Frankfurt School who were working with the U.S. government and sort of both doing intelligence gathering on the Nazis, but also kind of trying to make the argument that the only way to really undermine fascism uh, from returning in Germany would be to create democratic socialism in Germany, um, an argument they obviously didn't win, but whatever. Uh, uh, so it, to that part of his politics, to then with the rise of the new left, becoming what was known as kind of like the guru of the new left. And a number of Marcuse's texts were like super influential for um, young people and students and uh, broadly movement people at the time, including Eros and Civilization, his kind of uh, book on sexual liberation and his marriage of Marx and Freud, but probably the most influential was One Dimensional Man. So we wanted to kind of, as part of um, a catalyst series on radical classics, we wanted to like take a new fresh look ideally at that book, see what was living, what was dead, um, what it might have to say to today's left, even as Marcuse sort of eclipsed in stardom in part because he was so political and so some of his uh biggest concerns seem to be in the rearview mirror and you know as ac academia took up the frankfurt school they cared less about the much more directly political marcusa so let, let's get into one-dimensional man um can you both sort of lay out the basic argument and the or, or the kind of um yeah, I guess the basic argument of one-dimensional man and talk a little bit about why it was so influential for the new left. Uh, you have a really striking uh, paragraph in your essay where you talk about how students in Europe used to chant in 68, uh, Marx, Mao, Marcuse. So what's going on there? 
Yeah, I mean, so it's sort of surprising that students would be chanting um, Marx, Mao, Marcuse if anyone reads One Dimensional Man. And um, if you're looking for it in a bookstore, this is what the original looks like. Um, it's, it's not a book that offers very hopeful conclusions to its readers. Um, it seems somewhat counterintuitive that it would offer um, anything like uh, a political inspiration to a generation of young people, as it did in the 1960s. Um, so, what's actually going on in the book? Um, I think one of the one of the main contentions in the book, one of the central problems that Marcuse is wrestling with, is what has happened to the kind of traditional sort of Marxist theory of history. What has happened to the the working class? Um, in a context, this is post-World War II, he mostly wrote the book in the late 1950s, it's published in 1964. So in this world of, you know, affluence, prosperity, um, you know, in, in what he calls advanced industrial society um, in the West, in Europe, in the United States, um, how is it that the traditional sources of opposition, right, to the status quo have been absorbed have been rendered um, quiet, um, have been made quite happy with the way that things are. This is his understanding of that society. Um, and, and he's basically outlining a way in which the welfare state, consumerism, the blandishments of the affluent society have absorbed um, the working class, have absorbed um, the great mass of people and legitimated the system um, in such a way that it's hard to imagine anything really challenging the way that things are. Um, and so it's an analysis of ideology, but it's grounded in a materialist analysis of late capitalism or advanced industrial society, as we mention it in our piece. Um, I think it's also important though uh, to, to talk about um, the fact that the book ends with a, a, a kind of cryptic remark about the great refusal, um, that there's going to be some kind of death blow to the system, but it's not going to come from the working class. It's not going to come necessarily from the traditional source that we associate with you know, the end of capitalism or the, a challenge to existing capitalism, um, that in fact, there has to be some kind of rupture with the system, but it, it, at least it seems likely that under given conditions, the only place to look um, might be without, might be outside of it. Um, and he talks about those at the bottom of the pyramid of society. He talks about outsiders, the alienated, the disaffected. Um, and so part of what we're interested in is how the book sets off a search for new subjects of history, new um, groups that may be the revolutionary subject or revolutionary subjects, plural, um, outside of or separate from the working class. Um, and, and Marcuse, I think, leaves a lot of room for his readers to take that interpretation and run with it and what we're trying to understand is how he also, at the end of the day, is still a Marxist, is still a materialist who's very committed to a traditional, you might say, model of 
you know, working class as the central agent of history. So he's kind of think, thinking both thoughts at once. Um, and I don't think ultimately gives license to some of the reception of the book. Um, Jeremy, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's really right. I mean, even when he talks about the great refusal, he says like something it would be preparatory or a spark and repeatedly and in, like interviews and other things. He says, well, I can't really imagine social change without the working class. And that's part of what we wanted to like take on in this essay was that, um, you know, he and the Frankfurt School generally are treated as these kind of, you might say, like cultural determinists, determinists or um, uh, sort of people who are displacing kind of the role of the working class or materialist analysis or a number of other things um, in their approach to social change and their thinking. And we, you know, I, I think a careful reading of the book, especially for people who are like conversant in the categories that Marcuse is like, you know, trying to update in a sense, um, makes pretty clear that he's still operating from it, like an authentic sense of confusion where there's sort of the idea, I mean, first of all, he shares with the kind of classic Marxist view that capitalist society, um, however stable it might look like in the present, is like in a very bad state, is not like needs to be overcome. And he gives, you know, I, I tried, we tried to um, put in sort of boxes, sort of the three main uh, aspects of his critique. Um, capitalist society is incredibly destructive uh, and irrational. And, you know, the book really focuses on the possibility of nuclear war uh, throughout it, as well as environmental destruction and imperialist adventures. Um, also capitalism as a society of like manipulation and unfreedom. So people not having much at all freedom at their workplaces, um, people being, you know, corporations still having a predominant preponderant role in making real decisions about the economy and about society, democratic participation being kind of mostly a ruse um, and like an advertising campaign every four years, um, but not much substantial democratic participation from most people in the society. And also like the culture industry is playing a kind of role of uh, manipulating people into, you know, more or less sleeping through um, the, uh, the kind of more urgent issues that they're faced with. And then finally, Marcuse accepts that capitalism is still also characterized by a great deal of exploitation and unfreedom, or sorry, exploitation and poverty, exploitation in, you know, sort of the full working class in terms of like that working weeks could be much shorter, that hours could be shorter, that people could work less hard, um, and also like extreme poverty in the form of um, African-American ghettos in big cities in the U.S. or in Appalachia. Um, the extreme poverty there, as well as like the relationship between the first and the third world. So he has like this big criticism that he shares with the Marxist tradition. Um, and then he accepts the basic idea of social change from that tradition, which is that like you need, you know, a working class majority is kind of has the, the capacity, it has the leverage, it has the, you know, it's placed together in the places that might foment them to revolt and they need to be organized in the form of parties. And when a capitalist crisis comes, then you're in a good place to, you know, have a revolution and to transform society. The problem is he's basically like, yeah, this is still, as I see it, the only real path towards like substantive fundamental social change. The problem is like, these things don't seem to be happening in the way they, they used to. And what Ben called um, absorption, you know, his technical term is the theory of integration. And so the idea is like, 
working class people have been integrated through a number of means. Um, and, you know, he says, like, we need to do a materialist analysis of this because the separation of working class life from radical consciousness is like growing. And it's a problem because radical consciousness means nothing without working class political change. But I don't really know, you know, there's no real uh, theory of how you'd reunite them, but there is at least an, a hypothesis about why it's happening, which includes like a rising standard of living, which makes people less likely to revolt because revolution happens when people are starving and less when they're not starving. Um, it includes uh, atomization through uh, consumerism, that consumerism kind of pushes apart um, working class neighborhoods, working class culture that people in increasingly individually um, consume and, and experience society. And this makes politics and organizing harder. Um, and uh, as well as the rise of white collar classes, sort of the rise of the middle classes who are less um, likely to be as deeply upset with the system. So all these things basically for Marcuse of a frozenness of opposition, a feeling that like what opposition there is in these supposed democratic societies is very narrow, is very self-contained, is frequently sort of commodified and just feeds right back into the system and, um, you know, is not going anywhere. And there's this fundamental problem. And I do, I think he, we wanted to give him a lot of credit for actually, unlike what some people think about the book, taking a really materialist approach to this problem and like, and treating it as the fundamental problem, it honestly still is for the left, which is that the left, um, left ideas and the working class are still, even as the left is reviving, are still rather separate from one another. And let's go back to the, the new left for a second, because as you said, the, you know, the new left was heavily influenced by the Frankfurt School, by Marcuse. And I think for many new people, coming to the left today, I think they look at the 1960s as like, these were the glory days of the US left. You had the civil rights movement, anti-war movement, there seemed to be action everywhere. It's known as an era of protests. And you know, some have said that this kind of new revived left today, whether you wanna call it the Sanders left or the Jackman left, is actually kind of trying to revive elements of the old left or the new old left as we're called. Um, so I guess, you know, to break it down, what distinguish the new left from the old left? And why do you think we should still value the contributions and perspectives of that old left? And kind of where does the Frankfurt School fit into all of that? Sorry, that's big, but go that's ahead. A big I, oh, I mean, go ahead, Jeremy. I, I the one thing idea. I'd initially say is, you know, sometimes this is like an overdrawn um, dichotomy. You know, there's like, I mean, obviously someone like Marcuse came directly out of the old left and, you know, but also like, you know, the idea that the civil rights movement was like not thinking about economic issues. And it's to some degree, the contrast is sometimes, well, the new left cared about things like democracy. It cared about um, racial equality. It cared about uh, peace. It cared about a whole other set of values. And the old left was very, very focused on economic inequality and only economic inequality. And we talk about that a little bit in the piece. Like, I think it is to the new left's credit that it revived a kind of um, discussion and of democracy, for instance, that had sort of fallen out a little bit in the tradition um, of politics. Um, but that said, like, it's very clear that there was a socialist leadership in <laughs> of the civil rights movement. Um, it's very clear, you know, Marisa Sermon's book, If I Had a Hammer, is really good on the direct organizational connections between the old left and new left, like the SDS 
was originally the Student League for Industrial Democracy, um, came out of the UAW, came out of the union movement. Um, so, you know, that it's a little overdrawn, but clearly this kind of sense that like material concerns were not moving people to action and a new set of maybe wider moral concerns were going to move people to action. And maybe it would be new kinds of people, not the manual working class, um, industrial working class. That I think is is fair and certainly a difference in emphasis between new left and old left. Yeah, I mean, I would add to that. Well, first of all, I think that Maurice Isserman's book um, is a great book to actually scramble these stereotypes of old and new left and and the hard distinction between them. Um, but nonetheless, like those stereotypes have some basis in reality. The new left largely being, you know, largely speaking, middle class, um, educated, um, and inspired by movements that um, don't um, originate in questions of economic exploitation and material deprivation first and foremost, or at least aren't legibly on the surface about that um, in the same way as the old left, right, in the in the sort of face of the depression um, being very much kind of shaped by the labor struggles of that decade of the 1930s. Um, but I think that uh, Marcuse is, <laughs> again, there's something very strange going on in his reception in the new left. And we, we try to kind of show that in the piece in that, you know, as Jen said, um, you know, Marx, Mao, Marcuse, these banners that people are carrying in, in Rome and in Berlin um, in the 60s, they seem to suggest that Marcuse, you know, is giving license to a, a kind of a view of, of history of the student movement, of the anti-war movement that, that kind of valorizes it as, as the sort of, you know, this, the new kind of what revolution looks like under these new circumstances. Um, and I think that Marcuse disappoints a lot of these people, um, ultimately, <laughs> um, by actually saying, well, you know, in the final analysis, right, ultimately, as Jeremy said, kind of paraphrasing him, I can't imagine a revolution that doesn't come from the working class, right? I, I think that, you know, your essay does a good job, uh, a, a really good job of sort of rehabilitating kind of this materialist analysis of Marcuse that is often overlooked. And, and you know, as you've been talking about how he um, really does still kind of put an emphasis on the working class as an agent of social change. But part of your essay is also about how the new left kind of overlooks that. Uh, and, and you refer to uh, a specific phrase in your essay, the cultural turn, which I know other, other thinkers have referred to before. So what is that? Uh, what did the new left, uh, or, or what did the new left take from Marcuse that you think is incomplete? And how does that relate to the cultural turn? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one, one way of thinking about it, I mean, Marcuse generally was like, look, I like what's new about the new left because it's figuring out a way to develop a radical politics, which is adequate to the advanced capitalist world. So in this moment where economic equality seems to be more widespread, and we know from Piketty, like that's true. Um, it was definitely a moment where economic inequality had been like um, uh, curtailed uh, mm -hmm. through the victories of the previous period and through state action. 
So then in a period where that seemed to be somewhat the case, but there were all these still like deep fundamental issues in society, like Marcuse was like, what I like about the new left is it's like touching on these fundamental deep issues in the society. Um, and it's kind of mobilizing around them. And it feels much less like, you know, the title of the book, one dimensional. It's like, um, actually politics seems to be like, there seems to be life in it again. Um, interestingly, the civil rights movement wasn't as much his like point of reference. And this is something maybe we can touch on um, as we go, but he was very interested in sort of um, self-conceived revolutionaries in, you know, so the civil rights movement, I think was maybe a little too reformist in the way it talked for Marcuse, whereas like, you know, black power, um, the uh, student movement, uh, the uh, sort of counterculture, these sorts of things were like, proclaiming the need for like a radically new society revolution. And Marcuse was like, I like this element because they're kind of bringing back these ideas. On the other hand, like they are, the danger of this is that they are still like a minority and the the kind of situation of the left, the, the problem of it is that there's still, there've always been a few, you know, voices in the wilderness who are like, this society's bad. The question is what kind of mass politics is is it possible to organize a mass politics that could change the society? And so Marcuse would kind of, what Ben was saying about sometimes not satisfying his, you know, uh, his adherents, um, uh, his devotees was like, he would say, but, you know, there are limits to what we're doing here. Like there's, and, you know, he thought maybe he was interested in feminism at one point, I think as an idea where, you know, women are 50 plus percent of the population and so, like, maybe this is finally some way this can break into mass action. Um, but but generally, he was like, there's got to be a majority somehow. And the working class seems to be where it's at. And so the kind of the new left attempt to uh, displace that is wrongheaded. Now, I think, you know, on the, like, cultural turn idea, I think some of these ideas were taken to mean that fundamentally um, material politics, material analysis, material concerns were... Uh, less relevant because whatever affluent society or, or I don't know, maybe because uh, Marx had been wrong or whatever. And so we can just like, um, if we figure out the right set of like moral concerns, um, if we figure out the right kind of uh, things to put on our banners, we can organize a kind of complex, many-sided coalition, intersectional, um, that doesn't really center around a material analysis or material interests, but instead can kind of, you know, be willed into being. Um, and, you know, wouldn't you know, like intellectuals and middle-class people are really good at coming up with ideas and terms. So they seem like they would be at the head of this and they are like the discursive inventors who will invent a new kind of politics. Again, um, and that, you know, certainly took off in academia in the eighties and after as, as kind of people from the new left went into academia. So I think there was some sense that like Marcuse maybe seemed to be giving permission for that, even as we're trying to say that like Marcuse himself was quite conflicted about this and would never, never accepted um, the kind of way in which that stuff was taken as not a limit to be figured out, but instead as like a valorized, like, Oh, we figured it out. I'd just like to add to that, that, I mean, in the late 60s, so subsequent to the publication of One Dimensional Man, 1966, 67, 68, this is kind of the height of this, Marcuse really embraces, you know, in a full-throated way, 
the counterculture, the, the kind of the hippie counterculture um, as representing something, something new, something different, a different ethic, a different morality. Um, uh, and it's strange um, at first blush, given how cynical he seems in One Dimensional Man about a lot of these kinds of the beats and, um, you know, a lot of like self-appointed sort of, um, you know, critics and opponents of, um, you know, mass society. Um, but he, he again, um, always seems to come back to this notion that these, these groups, the youth, the sort of youth counterculture, um, have a preparatory function. That's his term. Um, you know, he, he says that their function is radical enlightenment. It's not quite a political function. It's a sort of, um, you know, an ethico sort of, um, um, you know, pedagogical one or something um, to, to kind of change the way that people think. Um, and, and, and also it's worth just noting um, in terms of culture, the cultural turn one Dimensional Man is a book largely about ideology. It's largely about how the ideas in our heads, right, living in this advanced industrial society um, are tools of, of the powerful that reconcile us to an unjust order um, that obscure um, real power relations and prevent us from basically achieving freedom. Um, and so there's a lot, there's a whole chapter about language, about the, the use of, of words in this society. So um, I think that, you know, it, that alone lends itself to an understanding of what needs to change that doesn't actually touch down uh, on the material, even if that is where he ultimately wants us to go. And a general critique of the new left to Marcuse was this general bureaucratization of society. And I think, you know, whatever, critiques we have the new left, I think it's fair to say that, you know, there was a good basis for this critique. We've seen, you know, so many, you know, labor parties, socialist parties, trade unions go through this process, lose touch with their base and kind of decline from that. But on the other hand, we've seen the last couple of decades, like we've seen the failure of horizontalism and trying to exist as a movement, you know, without taking power or without parties or structures. And I think a lot of us have come around to the idea that, you know, we do need some kind of organization, some kind of party, we need to intervene in the state. So, I mean, how would you assess the new left on this question of bureaucracy? Like, what can we take from them to, for our current context? How should we think about this bureaucratization of society? I think, and this has been said already here, that that the question of democracy um, being put back on the table is one of the great legacies of the new left um, to raise questions about people's agency, every everyday people's ability to intervene in political affairs, um, and to actually see that question as the basis on which a socialist, a democratic socialist society should be constructed. I think that's that's very relevant today, and that is something that we should look back to. But uh, to your question, Paul, I think um, there's no doubt that there's a sort of allergy to organization that haunts the left, um, especially over the last 50, 60 years. Um, and, you know, I think Marcuse's book, you know, if you were looking for quotations to kind of support that, you could find them. He talks at one point about the um, Italian Communist Party, I believe it is, Jeremy, 
playing the parliamentary game um, and a, a kind of just profound sort of nihilism about uh, mass politics and, and the sort of forms that it, it has taken um, in, in advanced industrial society. Um, I think that um, one of the, the issues we're trying to look at in the book is how uh, Marcuse is beholden to a notion that he gets from much of the classical Marxist tradition of revolution as a total rupture, a total rupture with the past, with what has been, um, that I think um, doesn't allow him to see some of the ways in which um, existing parties, existing political formations can be avenues for meaningful social change that will empower the working class. Um, and, you know, I think that the legacy of the new left often is consonant with that oversight. Um, that's something that certainly today, I think many leftists, uh, from what I have observed, seem to be acknowledging and kind of pulling back from. Um, Jeremy, maybe you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. I think, like, I agree with most of everything Ben said. I think it's like a really... A, you know, the new left, I mean, even in the Marxist tradition, I think with the rise of the USSR and sort of the centrality of the notion of planning to like a conception of Marxism, I think like the idea of democracy had really been somewhat uh, overshadowed as like a core um, value of the left. And, you know, it was for Marx, it was like, and so the new left, I think, like rediscovered that. I do think like Marcuse several times said to the students, like, but you need to be organized. <laughs> um, like that democracy you know, somehow a sense of meaningful democracy and a sense of um, legitimate authority uh, could work together. And, you know, he was like pretty skeptical about the like um, sort of totally anti-authority trend that you could see in big parts of the new left. And, you know, it's complicated. I mean, SDS was a really big organization. Um, we sometimes forget that, that the New Left did actually have this great organization. And honestly, I think one of, you know, it, it gets me angry to no end that the Weathermen have this like kind of weird mystique and like positive valuation. Cause it's like, they destroyed SDS and SDS was like a huge organization and whatever pathologies it had, and it had plenty decentralized, maybe quite a lot. Um, it was like, a real organization that could do some things on the left that, you know, some people on a whim sort of destroyed. Um, so, you know, they bear, they bear a lot of responsibility. Um, but, uh, but that said, like, yeah, it wasn't an organization a la a union or a political party that was like really sort of able to, in a coordinated way, um, focus its strength when, in, you know, it wasn't even really trying to win uh, elected office or intervene in kind of mainstream social institutions to push them to the left. Um, it wasn't, you know, that close to the labor movement. Um, so these sorts of things, I think like Marcuse sense that there was this, this strain in the new left that basically said like, legitimate authority is impossible. Um, flat hierarchy is the only way to go. And I think I, I, my own feeling is, I don't know exactly what flipped the switch, but since Occupy, I feel like the left has been a lot better about this. Like that's something, there's this just, people have a sense that like organization matters and building relationships, organizing relationships over the long term, and organizations that can um, uh, uh, pull people through like the downtimes in political struggle and not just when things are really exciting and popping off, 
that these are now like kind of emerging values on the left, which people don't see as anymore, I think, or much less so see as like incompatible with an, a robust idea of democracy. And that for me is one of the exciting parts of the, the Bernie left or the Jacobin left. So, so let's let's fast forward in time a little bit uh, to present day and talk about some of the kind of contemporary misconceptions around the Frankfurt School and around, you know, this boogeyman of cultural Marxism. So as I think, you know, viewers are probably aware, right-wing commentators, probably more than anybody else, are are the ones who are talking the most about the Frankfurt School today. They're, they're constantly sounding the alarm over, as I said, the so-called cultural Marxism, uh, which of course they see as a conspiracy to destroy Western society that originated with the Frankfurt School. And, you know, I, I think it goes without saying that a lot of these right-wing pundits who are uh, invoking the Frankfurt School um, are, are not really super concerned with what the Frankfurt School was actually saying. In fact, uh, you know, the Fox News pundit, Mark Levin, famously refers to the Frankfurt School as the Franklin School, uh, both on air on Fox News and also in his book, American Marxism. Uh, so accuracy, maybe for them, is not the point. Um, but I, I was wondering if you guys have any thoughts on uh, why the right is so preoccupied with what is honestly a pretty obscure group of thinkers? Uh, well, I'll just say one thing that's important to note is that Marcuse's influence is, is not just political. Um, it's also intellectual, right? Um, and, and this is even truer of people like Adorno and, um, you know, Horkheimer, people we've mentioned at the, at the top of the program. Benjamin, exactly, um, who are also members of the Frankfurt School. Um, and what I mean by that is there's a sort of, a, if you want to think of it, a critical theory industrial complex in the academy um, and in academic publishing as well that I think has shaped a lot of some of the most kind of, if you, depending on your perspective, radical or pseudo radical um, kind of dogmas, frankly, in higher education um, and in, in, you know, uh, the intellectual sort of public sphere, um, especially around questions of uh, race, gender, sexuality, disability, so on and so forth. And I think that the, the right just, you know, loves to um, dig into that um, and, and, and sort of stoke a lot of outrage, um, you know, and, and, and um, make a lot of hay uh, from, you know, the existence of all of that. And if you look at the footnotes, look at the citations, a lot of the, the sort of the basis of it um, in a very maybe, you know, roundabout way um, is, you know, Adorno, you know, Horkheimer, um, Benjamin, a lot of these figures loom large in a lot of this sort of critical theory discourse um, and, and I'm not, that's not to suggest that somehow like Adorno is um, sort of anticipating, um, you know, some of the sort of, you know, recent contemporary sort of theory. Um, but we can even identify in the example of Marcuse, his student, um, his most famous student certainly is Angela Davis, um, who I think many people identify with, you know, critical race theory, with uh, many of the sort of ideas that are sort of under the microscope of um, you know Fox News hosts right now, um, so you don't have to even look very far. Yeah, I mean, one thing I'll initially say, and I don't throw this around a lot, but I think there's a wee bit of anti-Semitism in uh, this right wing 
canard, you know, these were like Jewish intellectuals who came to America and, you know, um, have supposedly had a subversive influence on American culture. So I think that's a little bit of thing, um, speaking as a Jew. But, um, but beyond that, like, you know, what's ironic about what Ben points out is that, you know, what academia has largely done to these figures, ironically, is to take the Marxism out. Like when I studied Walter Benjamin, who I just mentioned, you know, this kind of bizarre, lyrical, mystical critic and political writer, when I studied him in college, like, you know, I, I remember after my sort of political awakening, going back to the texts and being like, oh, wow, there are like footnotes to like Karl Kautsky and Lenin all over these texts. And I literally like hadn't, it hadn't even like penetrated because it was just like the, the, what Marxism was, what a critique of capitalism was, what putting the capitalist class as the central obstacle to political change, what having like uh, radically egalitarian politics looked like was just so off the table in like academic circles. So ironically, you know, what is, um, what has been preserved from a lot of these thinkers is what's least Marxist about them, not like cultural Marxism. Um, ben, it looks like you wanted to say something. Yeah, well, I just want to point out another irony that I think we need to appreciate, which is that these figures, the Frankfurt School, saw themselves as saving bourgeois civilization, essentially, as rescuing it um, from, from fascism. Um, and I mean, I think, I think the idea that, you know, they are um, enemies of, of sort of Western civilization or whatever it is that the sort of, you know, the right is saying is so bizarre when you think about how reverent they were towards so much of, um, you know, European culture, whether it's music or literature or art and how much that informed, um, I mean, even just Marcuse, he, he's really a kind of a Marxo-Schillerian, I was joking with a friend. He's, I mean, his, his, um, his interest in, in Schiller's poetry and aesthetic theories, uh, you know, very much uh, a part of his, his work, just as much as Marxism is. Um, and so it's, it's, it, it just suggests how little engagement with these figures there actually is coming from these, these critics or these pundits. But I will say this, like, look, like what Ben said earlier, you know, in stereotypes, there's sometimes a seed of truth. Like, the fact is, like, what clearly what, um, at least part of the audience, the, the part of the audience that we as the left might want to rescue from, like, people who read this right-wing stuff. Some of it's just, like, you know, whatever, um, managers who are getting their whole worldview confirmed that, like, all of their employees are you know, subject to a, a hostile Marxist conspiracy. And that's why they like are taking long breaks or something. But, and those people, you know, fuck them, <laughs> not part of the coalition. Um, but, you know, those people who we are winnable potentially to the left, there is an idea that comes out of <clears throat> the last generation that legitimately, I think you could say there are moments in, you know, Marcuse that feel this way where it's like, you know, I'm saying to the working class, like, screw you, screw you for having benighted values, for not being um, humane enough, not being focused enough on peace and love, um, for caring too much about having a two-car garage. Um, you know, you're, you're backward, you're behind the times, you're part of the problem. Like, you can find sort of seeds of this kind of thing in Marcuse, and certainly in some of the New Left people that, you know, took up Marcuse. There was this sense that, like, 
oh, thank God we don't have to like think about the working class anymore. <laughs> like, you know, cause they're like, who wants to talk about them? So that kind of stuff is like terrible and damaging. And Mar- where Marcuse, it came out of like a sense of, you know, frustration and despair with this being like, look, the working class is not to blame for like, they're not being mobilized now, but like we need them and they're not arising and how frustrating is it? For someone who literally lived through a revolution in Germany and was like, then sees the U.S. and is like, what's going on? Like, please, please do something. Mm-hmm. Um, that there, There's a sense of pathos in Marcuse that some of his new left successors did not so much have. There was a sense of kind of self-congratulation um, and uh, pride in being like woke, as it were, you know, not the parlance of the time, but the same idea. Um, and so I think like, that kind of stuff we really want to leave behind and say that like, you know, you can't really trace a direct lineage, like someone like Matt Taibbi does or something from like Marcuse to like um, some of the excesses of like middle-class culture today. But you can maybe say something about how like there was a, you know, what rather than treat as a dilemma, how do we organize the working class into left-wing politics? Instead, it was treated as like a done deal and even a kind of, self uh congratulation for the middle class and and we can't do that kind of thing yeah i i, I want to stay on that point for a second because um toward the end of your catalyst essay um you know right-wing fear-mongering aside you you do kind of talk a little bit about how there is sort of this um unfortunate and perhaps accidental legacy of the frankfurt school where you now have these kinds of tendencies within especially contemporary liberalism uh, where you see, and I'm, I'm going to quote from your essay, um, you write, the replacement of interest-based politics by ethics, self-expression, and identity, of class organization by cultural contestation, of majoritarian aspiration by elite pose. And Jeremy, that was kind of what you were you were just talking about, like what you think, you know, we should obviously slough off. Um, can you guys say a little bit more about how uh, this happened uh, and, and how the left can reclaim a sort of more class-focused legacy of the Frankfurt School? Well, I can just say a little bit about how this happened. I mean, I I think we've covered some of this, but I I think an important piece of the puzzle is the notion that the working class is bought off, you know, is, 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 um, you know, lock, stock and barrel, just utterly absorbed into the system, incorporated, um, comfortable, I think at one point um, we quote Marcuse saying there's there's nothing more bourgeois than a member of the working class. Um, and this would have been in like 1969, 1970. Um, and I think that that's a notion that's, I mean, it's, it's incorrect, um, in, first of all, but it also, I think it's had a very damaging legacy. Um, uh, one that we, we can associate in large part with elements of the new left that Jeremy has just talked about. Um, and so I just want to focus on one thing, which is that, it, you know, even just within one dimensional man, um, Marcuse's portrayal of the working class as, you know, comfortable with the status quo, supporting it, uh, conservatizing influence in many ways. Um, it, he relies on evidence that, in fact, sometimes contradicts his conclusions. He draws, for example, on a study of industrial workers and I believe in auto plants. Um, that he he reads a certain way as as suggesting that 
um, you know, they are not militant. They are not really raising any kind of issues with their working conditions, um, that they're utterly, you know, complacent. Um, when in fact, the industrial sociology that he was citing kind of drew the opposite conclusion. And one of his critics actually points this out. Um, and so, you know, I think we have to be very careful and distinguish, and this is key, between believing that working class people are complacent, are utterly, you know, happy with the system as it exists. Um, in fact, um, you know, the arch conservative supporters of the status quo. Um, and on the other hand, I think a more realistic notion that working class people don't know what they need to do in order to change a system that they recognize damn well is unjust, is inequitable, is undemocratic. And I think that's that's where in some ways um, Marcuse's book, I think does lend itself to an understanding of false consciousness of people not knowing what's in their interest of not acting in their interest um, that that I think we need to be we need to be careful about taking away from um, how we understand mass politics because in large part I think it, it the condescension the sort of um, also the post materialist um, sort of you know quest for some kind of new basis of political transformation that we're talking about. I think a lot of it starts there. Yeah, I was just reminded of the, uh, there's an anecdote. I don't think we do this in the article, but one of my faves is um, the British sociologist, um, John Goldthorpe, who was like a great study, you know, did a lot of studies of um, uh, stratification and of uh, working class life in Britain. And he did this major study of a plant. I think it was an auto plant in Bohol in, um, in the UK. And, you know, he, uh, the study basically concludes like these workers are totally absorbed. They're totally bought off. They don't care. They're just like totally happy with how things are. A couple of union militants like kind of uh, pass around a flyer with like the study summary. And it says on top, like this guy thinks you're dopes and are like happy with the status quo. And it leads to like one of the big strikes in like <laughs> early seventies uh, England. So, you know, um, so there's that there's, and, and I think um, Vivek Chibber's work on kind of separating out consent from resignation that the, this, this period, the intellectuals broadly associated with Western Marxism were too quick to rule forms of resignation to see them as consent. So working class people like not knowing how to change their lives and also having things to lose. And so being less maybe inclined to change the society. Um, those things are very different than being like enthusiastic supporters of the society, as I think any organizer would tell you. It's like a very different problem to deal with somebody who's like afraid of like what they have to lose or unsure about what to do as opposed to someone who is like a hardcore supporter of like the existing status quo. They're just different problems that the, uh, I think broadly the Frankfurt school often kind of melded together a little too quickly. Um, and I would say that, um, I think broadly like presuming that it is possible to do interest. Oh, that's right. I was going to say that, look, what Marcuse started with, which is that revolution is extremely unlikely in the advanced capitalist world. So we need to think about politics in a different register. Also that a number of things about advanced capitalism separate and disorganize working people, um, even at the height of 
working class organization in the advanced capitalist West, let alone in our world today, where there's been increased atomization, you know, blowing apart of working class neighborhoods through occupational change, through industrial change, through deindustrialization. There's, you know, again, the loss of kind of cultural forms of cohesion that used to exist um, and in an authentic kind of working class culture. Like these kinds of things, you've got to start your analysis there. Otherwise you come off as like, revolutions tomorrow, like these sectarian groups. And Marcuse, I think, was right to think these guys are crazy. Like, it's not happening. Like, the U.S. is not tomorrow going to overthrow capitalism uh, as a whole. But, like, you can also say that there is a lot of room to organize and to grow if you take seriously what working people's actual problems and struggles are. And if you take seriously the tasks of, like, of organizing, of, of resuscitating the organizations that capitalism constantly pulverizes, um, of working with the union movement that exists, of working with working mass organizations that exist and building them and building left organizations like the DSA and, and building these things and, and deepening their roots to like give working class people like to meet their needs and to you know express their will in politics and also to like rebuild some of the shattered social fabric that allows people to be intimidated out of their their human rights as it were so maybe what we need to do is get academics to just like leaflet plants with their publications about workers being dumb and maybe that will be the spark i don't know um but the, to kind of return to the i mean this idea around you know integration co-optation um you know i think it's fair to say many of us on the Bernie, Jackman left, whatever. I mean, social democracies at least are kind of medium term political horizon, even if it's not our desired end goal. And, you know, in short, that would mean, of course, winning reforms, winning power in the state, you know, expanding the the union movement. But, you know, as you point out, Marcuse's work kind of warns us that this path can lead to an integration and may even just reinforce the strength of capitalism. And maybe put another way, I've heard Adolf Reed say a few times that, you know, we can keep doing this thing of pushing social democracy to its limits before capital stages a coup, basically until the sun burns out, you know, we can kind of keep doing this over and over. So I don't know, how should we think about this dilemma of social democracy, like in our own lifetime? Yeah, well, I just, I think it's important to just go back to Marcuse's biography for a second and remember that he is a child of the German revolution. Um, And, you know, he witnessed in, you know, in his interpretation, in many people's interpretations, the betrayal of social democracy, um, right? The the um, the defeat of the revolutionary left at the hands of the German Social Democratic Party, um, and so I think a real a real um, you know sort of combativeness toward um, social democracy as as the sort of humane face of capitalism. Um, is a through line in his work. Um, and I think it, it's consonant with a lot of the reception of his work and a lot of ideas we associate with the new left about not wanting to be tainted by, uh, you know, complicity with uh, the governing parties, with the existing system, with um, with the ruling class, um, and avoiding anything that that is insufficiently revolutionary. Um, I think we have to leave that way of thinking behind. Um, I just think the stakes are too high um, at this moment in history. Um, And I also just think that um, 
I mean, and critics of Marcuse's book at the time that it was published pointed this out, that the social democracy, the welfare state, these are achievements of political contestation and struggle, right? These are victories. Um, they, you know, they may have some kind of ambiguous consequences in terms of how they play out politically. Um, but nonetheless, they are achievements that we don't want to give up on or turn our backs on, and we should recognize them for what they are. Um, and I think that they're the starting point of, and the basis on which we organize, um, you know, a, a much more successful and meaningfully democratic um, set of, you know, social transformations, right? So, and I, I think that this is actually in many ways sort of the crux of our article in terms of where we find much of Marcuse's assumptions to be lacking, uh, many of his assumptions to be lacking. So maybe Jeremy, I'll hand it off to you there. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, I think, I think it's an interesting, like, in one sense, like an interesting empirical question of do, you know, there, there is a, a aspect of the Leninist tradition that Marcuse is clearly a part of, um, which kind of presumes that victories like for social, like partial victories are demobilizing. And I actually think like the, the jury's kind of out on that um, insofar as like, actually, if you look at social democracies in Scandinavia, like they were doing more, like they were using their victories of the 30s, say, um, to expand their coalition, to expand the welfare state. Um, and then especially in the 60s and 70s, there were radical currents within them who were pushing for real socialization of the means of production. And I think it's arguable whether it was like inevitable those things would go down and defeat like the minor plan or whatever, versus just like you know, it's politics. Like sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Um, and, you know, that's just, it, it, you know, Marxists sometimes like to think of everything as like, it's all written in the structure, the deep DNA of capitalism, but some of it might be really political. I will say like, also, you know, ultimately it seems to me, if you do agree with Marcuse's presumption that um, workers do have something to lose in advanced capitalist countries and that revolution is highly unlikely, then you have to figure out some sort of democratic road. And also that like full socialization of the means of production has like never been a, a you know, 51% program <laughs> um, that could win like a majority. Like these are things you really have to take and think about like how they affect your ultimate kind of sense of how social change might, uh, might play out. Um, you know, that said, uh, Marcuse's sense that like, the, you know, that there would need to be continuing like sources of revivification for this to work, that like the, you know, the left would have to be ready in a case where it won victories, it would have to be ready to take up new problems, it would have to be ready to be ambitious, it would have to be ready to think about expanding its coalition even further, and of, of chipping away at the power of capital, um, that all seems to me like true and something, I mean, God, I hope that this reconciliation bill, say, passes in some sort of recognizable form. And if it does, it will be due to people like Bernie and all the, you know, millions of activists who put their time, their lives on hold to give everything they could to this movement and to organize. Um, that said, like, it will be the very beginning of a process. And I think, again, my, my hope about and, and my feeling about today's left 
you know, there was some thought it was like, oh, if Biden wins, you know, Trump won and that activated everyone. If Biden wins, everyone's going to go to sleep again. I, I just think we're living through a period of like struggles, popular movements, um, class conflicts, radicalization of the right, which is like tending in the direction to keep people in motion and in struggle. And so I think winning reforms can honestly only do us good, at least at this moment in history, though it's something to kind of keep in mind um, how to pay attention to the dangers of co-optation as you hopefully continue to win. I think that is probably a perfect note to end on. Uh, we are just about up at the end of our time. So Jeremy, Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. And again, their article in Catalyst is uh, The Two Souls of Marcuse's One-Dimensional Man. It's great. Uh, I encourage everyone to check it out. Thanks, guys. Thank you both so much. This was great. Yeah, great to be on. Thank you. And we're back. Uh, Paul, have you ever read One-Dimensional Man? I was going to say, I have to admit, I have not. Uh, I did read their article, though. So, <laughs> yeah, I, so I might as well have read, read it. So Yeah. Um, for anybody who has not yet checked out Jeremy and Ben's article, it's in Catalyst, uh, The Two Souls of, of Marcuse's One-Dimensional Man. Again, um, it's really good. And, you know, I, I read Marcuse years ago and probably, like, at best understood half of it. But I still thought that the article was great. Uh, you just admitted uh, you have not read One-Dimensional Man and uh, you thought the article was great. And I think why the article is so good is that it really is it's not really about, I mean, it is, it is a reading of Marcuse, but it's really about the new left and what the left right. today can learn uh, from, from some of those uh, misinterpretations. So again, check it out. It's great. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, so we were going to have uh, Vinny from the Teamsters on, but it looks like he couldn't be with us today. Uh, so Maybe they we, started a strike. I don't know. Maybe right, yeah, why. we really don't know what's going on. I mean, given the way things are going right now, it could be anything. So um, hopefully we will have a chance to speak with him at some point down the line. Um, so, so stay tuned for that. Uh, but I guess unless, unless Paul, do you have, do you have any last minute uh, 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 bonus labor Paul <laughs> comments to make? Um, I do not, but we will keep following all this kind of strike development, potential strike development. So I hope, you know, hopefully there will be a segment I can do soon on a successful strike, but we'll try to keep everyone posted on how things develop in the labor world. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, I guess uh, that's it for us for today, uh, but we will see you next week. Uh, so good night and until then. Thank <laughs> you.